The core theme of Samuel is the sin and rebellion of a people against God and the consequences and the defeat that they get as a result. And then there is a confession of the people and a repentance of the people, and then there is a restoration of the people, and God gladly restores and he protects and he gives them victory again, and that's the pattern. And so I look at this story and I read it through the Old Testament, and, and I used to read it like these are just a bunch of old stories, and you know, they don't really pertain to me, but I guess I'm supposed to read it. And, uh, and I see myself through it all the way through, the whole strand of the storyline of the children of Israel and their failure and their restoration. I see me, and I'm hoping that you'll see you. That's my prayer anyway, that, that we see us in the story here, because that's why God left it for us. So at this point, um, things aren't going too good. Uh, we had a bright spot last week. Remember, those that were here, it was a, it was a bright spot, and now it's not so bright anymore. Got a little dark. The, the children of Israel have gone back to their old ways. The, the priests, these are the, the priests are the people who God has ordained to be in his presence. And he lays out the, the rule for them. You come in my presence. I'm, I'm letting just you mediate on behalf of the people before a holy God. You're going to cleanse and you'll bring on fresh robes and you will enter with the right heart. And, and you're to confess your own sin before you get there and to be clean. And they just went totally the other way. They was priests gone wild. They just were crazy. They became apathetic about God. The people did, about his holiness, about his presence. Like God was just, he was just somebody in my life and I heard about him and I, and I know him or maybe they confessed him knowing about Jehovah or Yahweh to one another, but he really didn't make an impact in their life. He didn't affect their behavior. And they practiced idolatry. Samuel, we're in 1st and 2nd Samuel. 1st and 2nd Samuel is one book. That's the way it was originally written. It's divided for whatever reason. But it's, it's one book. Samuel was a prophet. Uh, he was the last judge of Israel. We, we went to some of the judges, and he was the, he's the final one. And um, I just want us to look at some of the defeat and what God can do with our defeat and, and failure. So the priests. There was a priest called Eli, uh, originally started out a very godly man and still seemed to the very end. He, he had a shortcoming. He had two sons, and the priesthood went through the Levitical line, and so his sons became the priest in line, and so they functioned as priests before a holy God, and they just got a little flippant about it. I want you to read how God had it described, the priest described through the narrator here. Eli's sons were scoundrels. Don't you love those words? Scoundrels. What Mike said this morning, he described himself at one time as a scoundrel. They were scoundrels. They had, and why were they scoundrels? Because they had no regard for the Lord. They had so little regard that outside the tent of meeting, the presence of God, they, they had intimacy with the women outside the tent. That's how they corrupt they were. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight. By the way, it's not how your sin looks in your sight. It's how it looks in his sight. For they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. That means beneath consideration, just not worthy. We took the offering and the sacrifice of God, but it was just a, a box to be checked. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. If you sin against somebody else, 
God will come in and mediate for you. But it says, but if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Certainly not the priest, that's who's corrupted. His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. So it's a heavy word, and it's a dark one, and they had defiled it, and the people had followed suit from its leaders, and and it was like they went to the they went to the holy place of God, and, and it's like going to a Bocelli conf, concert and hearing the wonderful tenor and eating popcorn and crunching as you listen. So Eli does nothing to stop his sons. He's complicit by omission. And God has these words through Samuel. He says in, in 1 Samuel 3, 13 and 14, For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. You, you, Eli, you know the holiness of God and you let your sons have contempt for God's glory? His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the Levite line, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by a sacrifice or an offering. And so what Eli's sons did in this storyline is uh, the Israel was going into battle against their archenemy, the Philistines, and, and they had little regard for God, but they thought, you know what? You know what we're going to do? This would be a good idea. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant, where God sits in the holy place, where it goes in the tabernacle. They, they took it out of, it's not in the tabernacle anymore. They just took this thing, callously put it on a cart. God had told them in his law through Moses, you don't put me on a rickety old cart. They put, they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, and they thought, if we just wheel this out into battle, we're going to win. And the people believed it. We're going to wheel it out and win. And God looked at the, he said, nah. <laughs> I don't think so. They were morally weak. And the Philistines attacked. And even the Philistines were afraid because they regarded the, the power of God even greater than the Israelites at that time. So the Philistines fought, it says in 1 Samuel 4.10. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Just think of it. That's just, just two simple sentences there. All that happened. They went in, and the, the greatness of God who had defended them, protected them, had beat the Moabites handily, who had taken down the walls of Jericho. That same God decided the... Uh, if you don't want me in your life, okay. Don't expect me to fight for you. This was a big deal. The ark of God was gone and there was hopelessness. And Eli had a, had a, a, a daughter-in-law. Now her husband is dead. Eli, when he heard the news of the ark being captured, he had a heart attack and collapsed on the spot. And she had a son. She was pregnant at the time, and she had a son. What do you think she named her son? I mean, don't, I've never heard anyone name this. It's not a popular name for a reason. She named him Ichabod, which means God departed. God is gone. His glory is departed. She's thinking, how can we've lost the priest, and we've lost the presence of God? He's gone. And she named him son and in her grief. Well, Israel also lacked reference, 
reverence for God's presence. They treated the presence of God with contempt. And there, there was a group in the house of Shemesh that, that the, the ark is temporarily parked there. They, they get it back, it's parked there. And, and, and these guys in, in this place, Beth Shemesh, they decided, you know what would be really cool? This is a guy thing, by the way. We should really see what's inside the ark. Do you want to go look at it? Yeah, I think that's a great idea, man. And then somebody in the crowd is going to go, I don't think that's a good idea. Like, aren't we, we're not supposed to look upon God, and, and we don't have permission to look. at. We're not even supposed to go near the ark. Ah, it's all right. Don't worry about it. Nothing's going to happen. And uh, they, they, they opened up the ark. You see Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you're picturing that scene at the very end, right? They decided they'd just open it up, and then shh comes out, and all these people die. That's exactly what happened. That's where they got it, by the way. That's the inspiration for that movie. The writers weren't that smart. And um, they died, all of them. Everybody in the presence of God just was taken out. They treated the presence of God with contempt. It says this in 1 Samuel 6, 19, but God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And, and then they asked, like, get this thing out of here. Get this ark out. Move it out. This thing is dangerous. You know, it's really weird. They, they wanted to send the holiness of God away when they could easily have just asked for God presence and the holiness of God and to be allowed into the holy presence of God. They, they made a choice at that moment. They would rather dismiss God in his holiness than to have him close to them. I just thought that was interesting. So Israel failed, failed to revere God. They failed to revere his word. They did take back the ark and God had given strict instructions about how to carry the ark. He said, listen, if, you, if you're going to have the ark where my presence sits in the mercy seat, um, you have to carry it a certain way. You, you don't touch it, as the 70 and Beth Shemesh figured out. What you're going to do is you're, you're going to put it, there's rings in it, gold rings, and you're going to put poles through it, and you're going to carry it on your shoulders. That's how you do it. God doesn't go on a cart. But that's not what they did. They took the cart of God, they took the cart, they put the Ark of Covenant on there, and as they're wheeling it along and it's shaky, now God has a reason. Don't you know that God's got purpose in things? Like when he gives a, an instruction that we should obey it, even if we don't understand it. Because they probably thought, you know what? Uh, why, why do the pole thing? We don't need a pole. We got a cart. It's kind of heavy anyway. It's made of solid wood. It's laced in gold. Gold's heavy. I, I, I just think, why don't we just throw it on a cart? So they did, and they, you know, rolled it through, and it says this in 2 Samuel 6. It says, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nukon, Uzzah reached out and he took hold of the ark of God. In other words, it's going off. And he grabs it because the oxen stumbled and the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of the irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. You know, the, the ark was parked at uh, Uzzah's dad's house. And you just wonder if familiarity, he just got too familiar with the, with this God. Just too familiar. Familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah. You just wonder if that wasn't it. And he said, I'll just touch it. He, God needs me. 
And I'll just throw this out. It's Hebrews 10, 11 to kind of deposit this word in my heart. I have to remind myself of this because I forget a lot. It is dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's very easy to slide into contempt and familiarity with God. We have to be intentional about our reverence. That's why when they asked Jesus, how should we pray? How did he start the prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, how great is your name. That's a, that's a daily reminder for you and me. How great is your name, God? How great you are. I, I know I'm gonna naturally going to slide back to my old ways, but I have to be intentional, as Mike said, about the work. that I, I need to be intentional about, God, how holy, how, how great is your name. I do not dare touch your holiness irreverently. Israel... They had a problem if they were doing a step study, they had a failure in steps one through three. They did. Very simple. I mean, maybe you can't see it. Israel wanted a king. They demanded a king. Go to Samuel, give us a king. All the other cool kids have a king. Their king had always been God. He, He had fought and defeated the enemy easily without an earthly king. But you know what they thought? They thought, you know what? We need an earthly king because an earthly king can deliver us from our sinful addictions and compulsive behaviors make our lives more manageable. That's what they thought. Well, we're just going to use an earthly method to do something that God's power is intended to do. Israel had hoped that a king could restore their lives to some sort of sanity, some sort of health again. They believed that. They fell down. And they, and they totally believed that some kind of earthly King, if they turn their lives and their wills over to this earthly king, that he'll protect them and save them. And that is the whole intent of God writing these chronicles, having that laid out for us, is so that we can see that there is absolutely no earthly means, no earthly being that can protect us and empower us. There's no amount of wealth. There is no amount of power. There's no amount of perfect government system that can intervene and do what God is intended to do. And that's... He's laying that out and he's letting him see. Israel demands a king. They ask a Samuel to appoint one. They go to him. He's an old man. He goes, hey, you're old and your, your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. We don't need God. We need a king to fight for us. We need the right people in office. We need military might. Think God was hurt? He had given them. He knew they were going to have a king. He said it way back through Moses, back in Deuteronomy. You're going to have a king one day. And he he said, You know what kind of king you need to have? When you do decide to get a king, here's the king you should have. He laid it out for him, Deuteronomy 7 14 and 15. He says, When you enter the land your God is giving you, they entered the land and have taken possession of it and settled in it. They did that. And you say, Let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us. It says, when you say that, you're going to say it, and when you do say it, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. When you pick the person you want, make sure you pick somebody that I chose for you and not what you chose. Well, they they chose a guy named Saul. Why? He was tall, good-looking, and ruggedly handsome. He was very presidential. He was kingly looking. We need a king like that because if we got a king like that, he's going to look better than all the other kings. Look at our king. Trusting on worldly means. And God gave a list of qualifications for a king. Now, 
I will say in advance that these qualifications would be impossible for any man to fulfill, and this is intentional, why God gave these qualifications. He's making a point because he says, you're going to get an earthly king, but one day you're going to have another king, and he's going to meet all the qualifications, and he will, he will protect you. He will sit on the throne forever. He says this in Deuteronomy 17, the qualifications of a king. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law taken from that of the Levitical priest. He's to, he's to, he's to have the, the law of God written down. What, do we, what is he to do with that law? It is to be with him. He is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord God and follow carefully the words of his law and these decrees. That's what Mike was saying. Like, yeah, you devour it. It's not, it wasn't a religious thing. It's like the character of God is embedded in here and your spirit comes in the law. So he says, are you going to have a right king as somebody that needs to consume the law, carry it with him? But he can't just know the law. He's got to obey it. And, and part of that in verse 20 says, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law right or to the left. It says, He's not to consider, just because he's king doesn't mean that he's better. He's to be a humble leader. It's very hard to do wherever you go. People are bowing down and calling you Lord and giving you gifts and singing your praises and telling you what they want to hear. He says that's the kind of king you need. You need the kind of king that for your sake will be slapped and spit upon, will be mocked publicly, that will humble himself and will say that, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. You need a new king. No earthly king will ever satisfy the king you need. And he says if he does all, that king does all that, he and his descendants will reign long over his kingdom in Israel. So just to boil it down, the qualifications of a king, you got to keep, him, you gotta keep uh, with him a copy of the law. You got to read his word daily. You got to humble yourself and consider yourself no better than others. You got you to stay in and practice the law. So Saul's anointed king. He's, he's anointed by the Spirit. God is on him. God comes on him. He's got great. He starts out terrific. He's winning battles because God is with him. But Saul, like us, he, he does a little sliding. He gets a little careless. He, he, he goes, there's a, he's going to make an, a, a burnt offering to the Lord. He doesn't do it appropriately. He doesn't have the priest involved. He's, he's unclean. He's just flippant. He, he decides that, you know who's king? I'm the king around here. I can do things my way. That's the way I see myself in my life. That There are many times and days that I just think that I'm the king. I like to do things my way. Well, I know his word says that, but he doesn't mean it. Did he really say it like that? I'm not sure that's the right interpretation. I, I think I need my interpretation. Saul was brilliant at that, which you'll see. And so Samuel rebukes Saul for his disobedience. He says, if you've done a foolish thing, you have not kept the command the Lord God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. In other words, you would have been the redeemer of Israel. Of course, God knew he never qualified. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. He's referring to David. There will be the second king. Well, Saul disobeyed God again. He refused to eliminate this king named Agag, Agag and Agagites. Um, we talked about them, those that were here through our series, through Esther. 
there was, there was a, a man named Haman. Ooh. Haman was uh, single-handedly got a law passed that would eliminate genocide all of Israel. All the Jewish people, take them out. God miraculously intervened, but he, he was a descendant of Agag. He was an Agagite. So listen to that in that context. God had told Saul, you're going to go in, you're going to take out the enemy, take them all. Make sure you take the Amalekites, take out the Agagites, get rid of all of them. No one is the, the left standing. This is an evil kingdom. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites, but Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These, were, these they were unwilling to destroy completely. They were just unwilling. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Everything that was garbage and, and not good, they got rid of. And you know what they did? They, they said, you know, we're going to appease God here. We're going to take some of the good stuff and we're going we're to offer this to God. We're going to give him an offering, even though they totally disobeyed what God said. We're going to offer it to God. That's my religion. And God will understand. And we're going to take the plunder for ourselves, but we're going to give this to God. And as long as we you know, give him his due, he's going to leave us alone. Well, arrogance saw, to show his arrogance, he, he constructed a monument to his own honor. Samuel has to deal with that. He got rebuked for his disobedience. And I want you to hear this twisted thinking in his mind. I have this in my head. In my psycho brain, maybe in yours, we can twist things and rationalize things to make them like, oh, surely, surely this is my righteousness. I can do it. So this is what Saul does. Samuel goes to him and says, you didn't follow the rules. God said this and you did that. And, uh, and Samuel, Saul responds to Samuel, um, <clears throat> sounds like an eight-year-old here, but, but I did obey the Lord. I did. And you know, Samuel's thinking, are you out of your mind? No, I, I did, really. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I did my part. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back Agag, their king. And, and the, their, the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder. The best of it was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your, your God at Gilgal. We, we took a sacrifice and we made it. What, what's your problem? Leave me alone. I did my job. I went to battle, I destroyed all these people, and so I, I kept this king and some of his family. Total rationalization, twisted thought. Samuel replied, he says, do you think, does the Lord delight in your burnt offerings, or is it obedience that he delights in? Your religiousness, you're, you're placating him, or does he delight in you being obedient to him? That's what he asked them. To obey is better than sacrifice, he says in 1 Samuel 15. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the, you, he has rejected you as king. So he's telling them, your kingdom, your kingdom is over. You know the issue with Saul? That the very issue is that makes him different than David, who we're going to see next week? Saul did wrong, and he refused to confess it, admit it, and repent of it. He refused. That's what, that's what got him in the hole. It's like he was just stubborn. Uh, no, I'm not, I, I didn't do anything wrong. I, I totally obeyed. He was in total denial. First and second Samuel sets us up to see that mankind is incapable of ridding itself of sin and evil. And I really like that God knows that you and I are incapable of ridding ourselves of sinfulness and compulsive behavior. 
Isn't that comforting to you that he knows that? There's no lightning coming down to scorch you at this moment. That, that you, like Mike, called out to God and he said, I'll take you. I'll take everyone else. No one wants you, but I'll take you. I love this. God is his quickness to forgive and restore his people. He was anxious this whole time. The great thing is no matter how wicked they were, no matter how wicked the priests, how far they, far they fell, how bad a king that they adored, God still wanted his people for himself. He still reached out and said, I'll, I'll, come back to me. It's okay. Cry out. I love it. He's Psalm 86.5. He said, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving abounding in steadfast love to all who, what? Call upon you. That's the condition. Call upon him. Like Mike testified, those who call upon him, he's happy to answer. If we want God's goodness and forgiveness, we got to call him. It's a condition. And if we want to experience the reward of God's presence, and it's a reward to be in God's presence, then we have to seek him. Mike quoted this. It says this in Hebrews 11:6, but without faith, without confidence and trust in God, is it, imposs- it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. Do you believe that he is? And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He rewards those who diligently seek him. He rewards those who diligently go after him. I want to know you. I want, I want to know what you think here. God, I'm, as, I'm going into this job interview. I'd, li- I'd like this to be about you. Is this the one you have for me? God, I'm, I'm thinking of this relationship. Well, Lord, what do you think of this? I'm seeking you. I'm seeking your counsel. God, I'm waking up in the morning and I'm seeking you. I'm putting my, my agenda before you to see if it lines up with yours. I'm not bringing you into my life to make my life blessed. I want to bless you. I'm seeking him diligently, consistently, and I will fail at that. You will fail at that. And you have a God that is right there waiting at any moment to take you back. He's not gone anywhere. He's right there. The sun is still shining behind the darkness of the clouds. He still shines. And I love this in Acts. There, The Holy Spirit has come, descended, and Peter gets up to make this first great sermon to which many will give their hearts to Christ. And he makes this call to them, this conditional call, as they see the manifested power of God. And he promises something that's interesting that we all need. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. What's a refreshing? It's a a new start. You ever refresh something? Refresh that old beaten down piece of furniture? It's like brand new. You ever refresh something of your own life? Just refresh your wardrobe? It's just new. You're new. It's just a, a redo. God has given your life a redo. He is bringing, he promises refreshing, but the condition of the refreshing is the repentance. That's what he called Israel to do. Like, you, guys, you keep going after your idols and these things that are worthless, but I'm, I'm calling you, if you will come with reverence before me, 
treating my glory with, with the esteem that sh- it should be treated. If you do that, then I am delighted not only to restore you, but to refresh you. There are many days I need refreshed. I just need refreshed. It gets stale after a while, doesn't it? I need something new. And he promises to do that. And I love the part here that he does is like all that shame that Mike talked about, all that guilt and shame, he enjoys wiping it out. I'll just, I'll just wipe that out. I'll just cover that over. I, I'm not keeping a list of your wrongs. I wipe that out. It's like it never happened. Let that set in for you for a moment. Just set in. That's what he was trying to teach Israel. Like, listen, guys, I'm, I'm not holding your rebellion against you. I'm happy to take you back. I know you're a bunch of scoundrels, but I want you. As long as you'll trust me, you can be my scoundrel. I want you to be God's scoundrel. It's okay. He'll, he'll take you from being a scoundrel to, to being transformed. So we'll go into next week to, to David, and, and you'll find that God has sent a greater king than Saul, and he was a great king. But you're all going to see, also see that he had some flaws as well because God is preparing us for a greater king. He's going to take us on this road and this journey to a place of us being restored, having a king that will sit on the nations, overruling the nations, a king that is perfect and glorious, a king that wants the best for his people, a king who never stops loving his children no matter what. Oh, he'll get angry. You'll get consequences to your sin. Don't think twice about that. But he is so quick to forgive. That's what God was trying to teach Israel and to expect a great king. And so with that, we're, we're going to go to the cross. We're going to go to the God who took all of the sinfulness that we have and he covered it over to forget it. And he had a way to do that. He needed somebody who would live a perfect life. And it had to be somebody who felt every temptation, every desire that a man or woman would ever feel. He had to send a person into this earth to withstand the temptation and then to take and go to the cross, the innocent one, and to take our sin upon himself. And that all that would believe in him they shall be rescued from the consequences of their sin and forever dwell in the house of the Lord. And that he will raise that one who died who is 100% human, 100% God. Showing that he has the keys to life and death and that John Cologne today is in life. He is experiencing life more than any of us have ever experienced life. In your greatest moment on earth and your greatest vacation plan, your greatest mountain hike, the greatest beauty of autumn does not compare to what John is enjoying today. I know this isn't a memorial funeral, but if he were there today, I'd say he would be begging you to give your whole life to him because he's worth it.